You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Almighty God, we pray that you would humble sinners and exalt the Savior by the power and grace of your Holy Spirit for the sake of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Amen. Now, uh, some of you are aware that I recently completed my seminary degree on uh, December the 20th, about 25 years after I began the degree. Um, I turned in my final paper, and I thought that basically the hay was in the barn. You know, the deal is done, everything will be fine after this. I had three exit exams that I needed to take, but I didn't figure that would be too much of a problem. And so I texted some of my uh, friends who had graduated before me to ask them what I should expect with regard to the exit exams. And I got three text messages back within 10 minutes. Uh, Two of these exams are for the Westminster Shorter Catechism Test. uh, And that was the one I was maybe a little interested in. And here's what I heard about that test. Text number one. Hardest test I've ever taken. By far. Not even close. Text number two, the test is absurd, literally impossible, have no idea how I passed. (laughs) It wasn't looking good. Text number three, I studied constantly for three weeks, there is no threshold for failure whatsoever, it's misery. Hmm. So then I I read the academic dean's write-up on the Westminster Shorter Catechism exam, and I came to learn why it is that every RTS student considers it the single worst test they have ever taken. You have to perfectly verbatim memorize the entire Westminster Shorter Catechism. 107 questions, 4,500 words. You take the test in three installments. You can skip one question per test. But for every other question, if you get a single word wrong, you get that question wrong. And if you miss a single question on the test, you fail. You make a perfect score or It's a zero. Well, this wasn't looking so good. (laughs) I had a complete unmitigated meltdown. Uh, I uh, couldn't sleep very well. I was anxious, and I told my wife that even though I had been working on this degree for 10 years, that I was considering dropping out of the program despite the fact that I had completed all the classes. Uh, You see, perfection is just not in my DNA. Um, I cannot handle a burden of perfection. Well, in Matthew 5, Jesus is speaking to his disciples about false teachings and false understandings related to the law and salvation. And in this well-known section, which is called the Antitheses, there is a refrain where Jesus says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, and Jesus will quote or cite a misunderstanding of the law. And then he comes back and says, But I say to you, and he gives the proper perspective based on his divine wisdom. And what we'll see in Matthew 5 is that when we are confronted with the law's burden of perfection, we do not respond well unless we consider the grace and mercy of God. And so today, we're going to look at two things. First, the response to the law, and secondly, the reasons for the law. And what we will see is that the law is meant to take us to a place where we completely despair and our own ability to save ourselves when faced with the burden of perfection. And we find that the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ is our only hope. So first, the response to the law. 
In Jesus' day, there was rabbinical literature uh, like the Qumran and the Mishnah, uh, which were interpretations and applications of the Old Testament law written by the Pharisees and the scribes. And in many cases, the Pharisees took a great deal of liberty to interpret or expound upon or apply the law. And there were two common misunderstandings and misapplications that Jesus attacks in Matthew chapter 5. The first is grading on the curve, and second is creating loopholes. So with grading on the curve in Jesus' day, uh, there was a grading system of sorts that related to sin. Some sins were considered worse than others, uh, but more so some sinners were considered worse than others. Now, you may recall the displeasure of the Pharisees and the scribes when Jesus would associate with prostitutes and tax collectors. In Matthew 9, as Jesus dined with people of ill repute, the Pharisees asked, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They acted as if they, the Pharisees, were more righteous uh, and less sinful than those other people. And in doing so, in focusing on the sinfulness of other people, they were blind to their own sin. Now, I am the worst about grading on the curve when it comes to driving on the interstate. I am a notoriously not fast driver. Uh, I think 73 is just the perfect speed on the interstate, and that's where I like to set my cruise control. Now, if someone is driving 68 or below, I think that they are driving dangerously safe. I mean, dangerously, dangerously slow. Like, that's how you get people killed, by driving 68 on the interstate, right? Right? No. Um, Now, on the other hand... If someone's driving 78 or above, that is reckless. And they need to be pulled over and have their license revoked. Now, what is the thing that I am conveniently overlooking as I'm judging and assessing everybody else's driving? 73 is over the speed limit. I'm breaking the law, right? But that's how it works with grading on the curb. We focus on other people's sin so that we don't have to acknowledge our own problems. The church historically has been really bad about grading on the curb in the arena of sexual sin. For whatever reason, historically, homosexual sin has been elevated as worse than all other kinds of sexual sin and worse than heterosexual sin. And Jesus undermines this in the antithesis and says, sin is sin in this arena. Whether it's the Pharisees, the church, or myself, when we grade on the curve, we use it as a means to deal with our own guilt under the law. Grading on the curve enables us to ignore our own guilt and to focus on the guilt of others. And Jesus has no tolerance for this. He attacks it. He says, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. According to Jesus, if you have anger and resentment in your heart, it is no different at the heart level than committing murder. Jesus proclaims in verses 27 and 28, he says, you have heard it, that it was said... You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if you look lustfully at another person, if you dwell too long on a picture on the internet, whether you're single or married, it's no different. It is considered adultery at the heart level. So Jesus says, plain and simple, there's no grading on the curve. You're either perfectly righteous or you're sinful. There's no in-between. Now, the second misapplication of the law that Jesus attacks is creating loopholes. 
Uh, we see that in Jesus' day, uh, we see in rabbinical literature, that there were extensive loopholes and conditions whereby people were allowed to kind of get around the law. An example of this that Jesus cites would be divorce. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, uh, divorce was granted on grounds of indecency, which a sensible translation would say in cases of adultery. Um, a man had to bring forward eyewitness account, an eyewitness account of the offense and also had to get authorization from the civil and religious liberties to, authorities to get a divorce. But what we see is in Jesus' day that Jewish men would just unilaterally and flippantly divorce their wives. In fact, we see in the Mishnah that there was a loophole that allowed a man to divorce his wife for burning dinner. Now, a similar example was loopholes related to oaths. There was a sophisticated system of oaths um, in the rabbinical literature with dozens and dozens of loopholes. And the one that Jesus attacks is the notion that if you don't swear by God, but if you swear by Jerusalem or by the earth, then you're not obligated to keep your word. So in some Jewish circles, when faced with their moral frailty and their own sin, the answer was just to rewrite the rules. Now, why was this? Well, part of the reason for this is, in general, the Pharisees and the scribes and and the Jewish faith at the time believed that you had to save yourself. You had to depend upon your own moral and religious performance in order to be righteous before a holy God. And so when confronted with the absolute impossibility of perfectly living up to the law, the answer was just to relax the standards. And Jesus says, no, you cannot do that. If, if, If... you desire to flippantly divorce your wife, you cannot just make up some rules. It's violation of the law if you do that. If you give someone your word, it doesn't matter who you, what you swear by. Breaking your word is breaking your word. It's sin. And in corners of the American church today and on certain issues of very challenging, very challenging obedience, uh, there is a propensity to do the same. Does the Bible really say that? Or does the original language say that? Or... Did people really understand these matters back in those days? And rather than pointing people to the power of the Holy Spirit for challenging obedience, people just try to create loopholes. This is a misunderstanding of the function of the law. The burden of perfection that the law presents before a holy God exposes our guilt. And as sinners, our first instinct is to try to manage and fix and justify our guilt on our own. But that undermines the purpose of the law. Which takes us to our second point, the reason for the law. Now we first need to recognize and acknowledge that in Matthew 5, one function of the law is to lead us towards ethical and godly living. Uh, Avoiding lust, remaining faithful in marriage, managing resentments, practicing reconciliation, being a person of your word, all of which are mentioned in the antitheses, are good things for Christians to practice. In verse 29 and 30, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So he's clearly calling for us to fight against sin and to live in a godly and righteous manner. But a second and probably more central function of the law in Matthew 5 is, quite frankly, to break our will. It is to bring us to a place of desperation in our ability to save ourselves. In verse 20, just before the antithesis, Jesus declares, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And at the end of the six antitheses, in verse 48, Jesus raises the bar even more. 
when he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So Jesus is talking about the need for perfection for eternal salvation. So let's go back to my micro-crisis related to the seminary exam. If I failed the test, what was the consequence? I wouldn't get my master's in divinity. I would have studied for 10 years and learned a lot, but I would not have a seminary degree. Well, what is the consequence of imperfection that Jesus is talking about here in the antithesis? What are the ultimate stakes of the burden of perfection under the law of God? Simply, straight out of the mouth of Jesus, the consequence is eternal judgment and hell. Jesus mentions hell three times in verses 21 through 37. Verse 22, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 29 and 30, it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So three quick things to say about hell in this passage. First, no preacher gets excited about talking about hell. No one wants to be hellfire and brimstone. But it's so prevalent in this passage, it would be somewhat disingenuous for me to pass over. Secondly, Jesus talks about hell more than any other character in the Bible. Christian educator Leslie Smucker writes, Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven and describes it more vividly. He talked about hell more than any person in the Bible. There's no no denying that Jesus knew, believed, and warned against the absolute reality of hell. And thirdly, we tend to think about heaven and hell in terms of good and bad. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. And that is a category error. And it creates a lot of problems for us when we think about the fairness of salvation. Biblical Christianity says that rotten people like myself who receive the grace of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins end up in heaven. Whereas lots of really good, kind, charitable people who live decent lives far more moral and ethical than me, but who are trying to save themselves by their moral and religious performance, that they will end up judged. The proper category for heaven and hell is perfect versus imperfect. And that is part of the problem that Jesus is trying to correct in this passage. Many of the Pharisees and the scribes thought that they could earn their way to heaven through moral and religious performance. And when the rules got too hard, they changed the rules. Or when their sin was so glaring, they would just focus on the sin of other people. And Jesus is trying to break the disciples of the notion that they can find salvation through their own moral and religious performance. Here's the reality that Jesus attests to. Now, think about my test. Think about the pressure of having to get a perfect score on the test. That's a lot of pressure. I felt it for about a month. Well, for eternal salvation, if you're trusting in yourself, what Jesus says is that you must be absolutely perfect every single second of your life. One curse word, one little white lie, one temper tantrum on Highway 280, one judgmental thought, one peek at someone's paper while you're taking a test, one mean Snapchat or text message, and boom, your score is imperfect. You fail the test, and the consequence is judgment. Well, that's overwhelming, right? I mean, that is utterly terrifying. That takes us to a place of complete despair, right? And that is exactly what the law of God is meant to do. The law of God is meant to break us of any hope in our own moral and religious performance. It's meant to lead us to total despair in our own power to save ourselves. And it's meant to bring us to a place of total destitution 
in our power to make ourselves righteousness. And thereby, it is meant to lead us to the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus alone for salvation. John Gresham Machen wrote in What is Faith? So it always is, a low view of law brings legalism and religion, but a high view of law makes a man a seeker after grace. Oftentimes we focus on Jesus' death on the cross and the forgiveness of sins, which is a good thing to emphasize. But one thing that we forget about and that we don't spend enough attention on is that Jesus also had to live a perfect life for our atonement. He had to live the perfect life that Adam could not live, and he had to live the perfect life that is required of us, but that we are totally incapable of living because we are flawed human beings. And because he was God, he lived that perfect life for you, and he lived that perfect life for me. So when you put your faith in Christ, not only are your sins forgiven, but the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to you. So at the theological level, when God the Father looks at you, he literally sees you as perfectly righteous. The burden of perfection is broken, and that is the good news of the gospel. Now, I have talked about the burden of perfection in terms of salvation quite a bit, but I know that many of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, feel this burden of perfection in many areas of our life. You have to be the perfect parent or the perfect spouse You have to have the perfect outfit, have the perfect Instagram account, have the perfect resume, and so on, so on. Perfect, perfect, perfect. It is absolutely exhausting. And so if you feel exhausted or you feel burdened by this burden of perfection, understand that the law and the spirit are doing their job. They are doing work in your life. They are leading you to a place to despair in your own self-sufficiency in the everyday life. And they are leading you to the grace and the rest of Jesus. Rejecting our own self-sufficiency and trusting in the grace and rest of Jesus is not just something we do the first day we become a Christian. Rejecting our own self-sufficiency and receiving the grace and rest of Jesus is something we do every single day of the Christian life. So as you go into your day or into your week or into your life, remember that if you are in Christ, Jesus has already lived this day perfectly for you. And if you are in Christ, Jesus has already lived this entire week perfectly on your behalf. And if you are in Christ, Jesus has already lived this entire life perfectly for you. You are a free person through Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, we pray that you would glorify yourself in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.